You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Well, good morning. How are we doing? Good to see you guys. Um, Well, I got the opportunity uh, to go to Bible College in Portland. It's called Multnomah. It used to be a school of the Bible. Uh, my time, it was Multnomah University. And uh, first year, one of the things that they teach you kind of right away, around the get-go, is whenever you see in the scriptures the word therefore, you have to ask this question, what is the therefore, therefore? Clever, right? Super clever. I paid a lot of money for that. <laughs> So the therefore of this passage, what it always means, it's a conclusion of what came before it. Okay, so what we had before, therefore, because of that truth now, and then there's the prose of whatever it is. So let's look back real quick. Chapter 1, verse 3. Keep 1 Peter open on your smartphone or Bible, whatever you have. We're going to turn back a little bit. First uh, Peter 1, 3. This is what we're looking back to. According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed revealed in the last time. What a proclamation, right? That is the great proclamation of what we have in Christ Jesus. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't do it on our own. This is the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen? But this should change us. Like, we should not be able to just hear this and more shockingly believe this and then just be unchanged. And it doesn't do anything to us. So the therefore is an assumed logical progression of if A, then B. So if we have been born again with an eternal inheritance that is guarded by God himself, Therefore, let's get to our passage today, 13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There you go. Peter is wholeheartedly encouraging professed Jesus followers to base their hopes on what they have through Jesus, not just what they're getting out of life. Now, this is huge. And we're not going to pick apart every single line today, but a couple of them we really need to. This is huge. A couple reasons why. Because the people that Peter's writing to, they're not getting much out of life right now. Okay, being a Christian in their time wasn't necessarily illegal, but it was often ridiculed. It was marginalized in its importance. Only the weirdos believed in this guy who died. Another reason is the language. This phrase, prepare your minds for action. Like, we don't necessarily use this language anymore, but the more accurate and original phrase is one of my favorites. It's gird up your loins. Okay, you guys heard that before? It's a beautiful phrase. To be honest, I'm thinking of bringing it back, like maybe not the loins part, but it's, it's kind of a good, like, tally-ho, you know what I mean? So what it meant for them at the time was men would wear these long tunics, and when they needed to be uh, in action or to move quickly, they had to roll up their tunic, kind of tuck it in and wrap this belt around so their legs could be free so they could run, okay? Gird up your loins, pretty, pretty simple. Um, the, the phrase is actually super relevant to the audience that is intended from First Peter. So this references back to a couple references I'm gonna show you biblically. Uh, it goes back to Elijah, right before God was about to use him to radically change leadership regime in Israel in 1 Kings 18. 
This says in 46, And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garments, in the King James Version, it is, he girded up his loins, and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Okay, so this is, this is like, okay, we're going back to Elijah now, okay? Jeremiah, the prophet, before he prophesied to the people of God, encouraging them in the face of incoming disaster. This is Jeremiah 1.17. God's talking to Jeremiah. But you dress yourself for work, King James, one of my favorites. Thou therefore gird up your loins, arise and say to them everything that I command you. Jesus took this concept of being ready for action in Luke chapter 12. He talks about someone who does not prepare themselves for when their master is about to come home. In fact, he finds himself not caring, drunk, and on the ground, unready when his master comes back. He doesn't even care, or to borrow a phrase, have loins to gird up, right? Which ties into and makes sense why Peter would then start talking about being sober-minded. Using this reference back to Jesus, Peter uses the word picture of preparing your mind and not muddying it with literal or proverbial drunkenness. The spiritual fruit of this is called self-control. Last reason I'll mention about the skirting up of the loins is that what Peter is unveiling here with his audience, remember Peter's writing to followers of God who have largely been displaced from their homes. They're not living in a place they know. They're sent into other parts of land that is not their own, and they're Jews and Gentiles mixed together. For a believing Jew, there is this rich history from Abraham to right then. For a Gentile, there's no rich biblical history, right? Until Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, the tearing of the curtain now for God's presence to be unleashed to anybody and all who believe, the Gentiles were just under this unknown, this other so the Gentile believers, this is why it's so big, they need a starting place. In the story of Exodus, when the Israelite people were set free and about to start their journey in the wilderness, God instructed Moses and Aaron to lead the people first before they left in the practice of Passover. Okay, I know this is all familiar. We went through our Exodus story, and you guys have heard this before. Eating of the lamb, putting the blood on the doorpost for when the Passover, the death of the firstborns, does not happen to those who are covered by the blood. Read, let's listen to this, Exodus 12, 11. This is what they tell the people. In this manner you shall eat it, this Passover, before they started their journey. With your belt fastened, what do you think the KJV says? With your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So girding up your loins for the Jews is an action phrase. I'm about to do something, says God, and you need to be ready in mind and body. So back to our passage, this is why Peter, most likely speaking to Gentile believers now, in verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Jews don't have the luxury of former ignorance, right? This is their story. They've been in this from the literal beginning of their heritage. But now the expansion of those who were once outside, the unclean, now welcomed into the same faith, the same God, the same encouragement of lifestyle. When the Israelites wandered in the desert, God called them to be set apart, to be a different kind of people. In Leviticus 19, he charges the people. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This was specific instructions on how they should worship. 
right? This was to the people of Israel on how they were to worship their God and how it was to be different than other cultures and other practices of worship. Now Peter here in our passage is giving these believers the same kind of charge. You should be different. You should be countercultural, not anti-cultural all the time, but counter-cultural because you are set apart for something bigger than yourself. And how you live is worship. It's not just a duty once a week. It's a lifestyle that aligns your allegiances. So they right now are living their own very real Exodus story, their own narrative beginning now. They're in a land not their own. They are exiles to where Peter now says in verse 17, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So it's not just this like bearded old man in the sky or this like nebulous atmospheric God that, that the people sometimes think about. It's this father. If you call him father as a known one, as one that has called you child, as we looked at earlier, has, the one has given you a kingdom as an inheritance. If you call on him as father, then you're already surrendering to him. If you're at that point where you're calling him father, it puts the responsibility back on the disciple to say, okay, if you're saying you're following this, then this is what it means. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So you and I, we probably don't think about fear when we think about worship. Maybe, right? Maybe you come here with trepidation, right? But like true, just fear. We don't usually think of that. Worship is beautiful. We we, we hope for peace and joy and all the right feelings, and I hope Austin plays that song I love, you know? Um, and that's all great, and that's all, that's all wonderful. We are here to worship and sing praises, and that is beautiful, right? But what do we see over and over again in the scriptures? Anytime some angelic being or heavenly host or someone appears to someone, what, what happens? Do they just have all the good feelings and they just stand there and glow? Like, they, they're just flat on their face, right? It, they are terrified, right? The number one line of angel school it, this is what they teach you, like, do not be afraid. Like, that, you're going to be an angel, you're going to freak people out, just here you go, right? This is angel 101. It's terrifying, but it's good. It's terrifying to be in a land, not your own, on your own, believing in something that it seems like everyone around you does not. That's terrifying. But what you believe in is life. Peter's reminding them of their unshakable, undefiled, unfading, eternal life. They don't have to be terrified of leaving their house. There's a healthy fear of, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I need your help, but I wouldn't want to do anything else, right? As long as God's people are on this side of eternal home, meaning they're in exile, they're to conduct themselves in, the NIV translates fear, reverent fear. Okay, this reverence and awe for God. So Peter goes on, verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It's a cool passage. So ransomed, that word ransomed there, can also be translated redeemed, okay? The context for this is extremely cultural, okay? Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking especially about like servanthood, and you're going to hear words like slave because the scriptures have that wording there. And we know, we understand, we want to be sensitive to that. We know that's a, that's a hard topic and that it brings up a lot of stuff. So just, be, just know we're talking in these scriptures about these words. We're talking about servanthood, but Peter is always writing, never in an abusive way. 
Peter is always writing, bringing it up in the context of what it means to be living as servants of God that we'll see uh, next week, I think, in chapter 2. But we're talking about a different time, a different culture, and for first century followers of God, there was a very real market for servanthood, for servants, okay? So people that would look for a job to serve a master of some kind and take care of their affairs, okay? Legit job. Could that get abused? Absolutely. Was it also a legitimate job? Absolutely, okay? Historically, you can go look this up. This was not always a terrible thing, a way to earn money. And of course, you can work for someone with status, then it would go better for you as you wanted to move up in your own resume, right? Did this, uh, however, there's also an interesting aspect to this. In the Greco-Roman culture, there's something called manumission, okay? Manumission is the act of freeing slaves or servants by their owner, and I learned about this, and I want to read you what I learned so we can learn this together, okay? Because I didn't come up with this, okay? So this is from a commentary on 1 Peter by Karen Jobes. Um, I'll read it to you. The slave would receive his or her freedom after depositing money in the temple of a god or goddess. Money, which would then be paid via the temple treasury, minus commission, to the slave's owner with the thought that the god or goddess was buying the slave. The former slave would then be free in the eyes of his former owner and society, but would be considered a slave to that god or goddess. Okay, fascinating, right? That's what manumission. It's, it's, so Peter, knowing this and using similar language, speaks of the redemption these people who call God by the name Father have received. Although freedom is it's not something just on earth here, it's from their heritage that's not being a part of God's people's lineage, the former, their former ways that were futile. Okay, and this deposit is placed, it's not a certain amount of coin of silver or gold, but it's bought with a more precious and priceless payment. Verse 19, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What are we back to for these people? We're back to Exodus. You were brought out of slavery, out of your former ways of living, out of the futile ways, redeemed for new life by the blood of the lamb. And this lamb, let me tell you about the lamb. Verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. This was not a surprise, right? This was purposed. This was planned. This was made possible for your sake, for our sake today. Why? Because it's right now. Verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, for you and I today, we've had the scriptures for a while, right? Bibles have been around for a while. This is common, common language to us. Like, sometimes we can get kind of complacent with it, right? We get it. He died. He rose again on the third day, blah, blah, blah. We get that, right? And we get kind of complacent with it. Think about the first original hearers. This is not normal language to these people. This God, the Father, Jesus, the Son relationship, there's nothing like it. For these people. Peter's audience was living in this time. Potentially, many of the Jewish converts were even there for the crucifixion, or at least knew someone who was. Maybe even saw him in the resurrection. It's crazy to think about. The God that raised that man who bled and died on the cross, Jesus, from the dead, is now the one that redeemed you from your ways of life with that very blood. Redeemed you from the life that was going nowhere without him. Like, church, we cannot get used to that. 
Like, this is a huge deal. It's a big thing to wrap our minds around, and of course, for first century uh, converts to Christianity, this is massive, right? Peter is unveiling this. Peter does this cool thing, and we'll see this throughout uh, a lot of First Peter, where he does these big proclamations of who God is and what he's done, and then because of this, that therefore, again, he charges the people to act and live out their worship of God. So he's talked about what it means to be holy, and to have this fear, reverence of God. And now he moves towards the action. Because of that, now love. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Remember, Peter is writing to Jews and Gentiles what was once very much oil and water, telling them to love one another as brothers and family. Like the closest experience I've had, an example I could think of, is like the DMV or jury duty. I kind of, in my head, those are like the same thing, right? You find yourself exiled, right? You're not, you're, you're everything around you, you don't know what it is. You're there for kind of a similar reason. You feel this kinship, but you're kind of wary of each other, right? Inevitably, you walk out with the person that you walked in line with. They tell you, you filled out the wrong paperwork, you have to borrow their pen, and then you have to go through the whole thing, and you miss your call, when you walk out, you're family, right? You guys ever done this? Like, you walk out, you're like, we went through something together, right? There is hugs and tears. This is even more than that, okay? Sincere love, not just casual, nice to someone on the street kind of love, doing life together kind of love. Now, the phrasing is interesting here. It would seem that it would say, the obedience to the truth led to the purification of the soul. Let's define a few things and make sure that we're not seeing this as a salvation or a works-based salvation, okay? Truth here means the gospel, okay? The good news of Jesus Christ. The simplest form of the gospel stated in the gospel of Mark by Jesus himself, Mark 1, 14. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So truth is implied repentance and belief in the good news that God's kingdom is breaking through. Obedience in this truth would mean that someone has heard the call, has repented, and has believed, and this is salvation, okay? But as we've seen over and over again with Jesus' teachings, there's a cause to salvation. That is a living a different kind of life, a life marked for love, uh, marked by love for everyone, even Jew to a Gentile, even someone you don't necessarily like. Jesus said point blank to his disciples in John 13. He says, by this all people will know you are my disciples. This is it, if you have love for one another. So working backwards, sincere love is a marker of someone who has obeyed the truth and been purified at a soul level. And when this happens, this makes a whole new kind of of family. Verse 23 of our passage today. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. This new family, been born again. This family can be one of human flourishing because now there is, to quote the New Testament, there is, in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there are no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
In Christ, we are one. There is no better human. There's just Jesus who is better. And this oneness is sustained by the eternal word. God chose his people and made them born again, giving them new life, wanting them, loving them. And it's because of his great first love that now we can show genuine love to others. Peter ends the first chapter of his letter with a nod back to the time of this prophet Isaiah by quoting this little prose. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. One of the aspects I love about God's word is that there's always this, the truth on the surface that you don't have to look hard for, right? This is so true. This is an artistic way to express an infallible truth. Flesh withers away, and glory only lasts for a moment. It's the gospel that is eternal. This is incredible truth, right? It's only the gospel that is eternal. But this passage also has layers to it. This is from the prophet Isaiah, specifically recorded in chapter 40 of Isaiah. Now let me give you some context real quick, and we'll end here in a little bit, for this as we peel back some of these layers. Isaiah was a prophet risen up by God specifically for the people of Israel at a time where they are struggling with choosing the way of Yahweh God or choosing other idols to follow. God, through Isaiah, reminded the people over and over and over again of their impending doom if they continue and because of their continuous rebellion. Or as the New Testament language says, he keeps telling them the wages of sin is death. In chapter 39 of Isaiah, right before this, God foretells the people that Babylon, the great big Babylon, which is always this kind of like uh, term for just the kingdom of darkness, but it was a real place at this time, that they will be conquered. They're coming to conquer them, and all the people are going to be sent into exile because of their sin. Peter here is connecting, to end this passage here, the people of exile that his letter is addressed to the history of God's people being in a land not their own, constantly questioning and having to figure out what does it mean to follow God right now where I am at. But Peter brilliantly and subtly, by using this passage from Isaiah, is urging his listeners to remember their history. And for the first time, maybe telling these converted Gentiles who their God is. Right? God's people did go into exile. But what came out of it? Right? We have tons of stories. We could have cited anything. But we have the stories of Daniel. Right? That Lots of us know the stories of Daniel, who saw many trials in Babylon after the exile the various prophets who God has raised up and sent his to his people in exile to help them turn their hearts back to God, to see this exile as an opportunity to put their faith and lives once again in the service of Yahweh. The constant foretelling of the Messiah who would come to deliver and the need for a Messiah to come and deliver them. Nehemiah, if you remember that story, he comes back out of exile to now rebuild the temple of the Lord. This is now where the Messiah would come and reside, but he warns the leaders there, if they continue to make the same mistakes and turn to other idols, they would meet the same fate as before. Time moves on, and we could do a whole history lesson, which I nerd out on, right? But time moves on, the temple is defiled once more, and this is where you get the Maccabean revolt, where they want to keep the temple, they want to fight for it. Right? They're these Jews that retain what they have in the Lord. But further protection and might 
was needed down the line. So actually at the request of the Jews, mighty Rome comes in, takes over, religious leaders of the day give themselves now to this savior, an idol of might and wealth and sword. In ironies of ironies, when Jesus Christ finally arrives, he enters the gates as the long-awaited Messiah. They crucify him as a criminal not knowing that it was actually his death that will reverse the curse of sin and now no longer death would reign. But to finish Romans 6, the gift of God is eternal life to all who believe. Peter now is writing like a prophet of old to the people of God in exile, except it's not like a close your eyes and wait for it all to end kind of thing. This is a you now have a hope that all those before you endured their trials to seek after, and you now have this. You now have been born again to this same living hope that has been before you and will go eternally after you. Just like the people before you in exile in Babylon were staying faithful and focusing on the coming of Jesus Christ as Savior, Peter's audience, and by extension you and me today, are striving to stay faithful and focused on the coming of Jesus Christ again as the final word. If Peter is encouraging his audience to look back and see God's faithfulness, we have almost 2,000 years more stories, more people being set free because of the gospel, more repentance, more chains brokenness, more of God's faithfulness over time. We get to live in the reality that every spiritual force of darkness before us couldn't stop the word of God. Every superpower in the world that took over could not stop God's people from loving one another and living self-sacrificially. And now we live in the realities from Romans 8 where there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now on a soul level, sin doesn't even have a hold on you. For first century followers of Jesus and for us today, if we remember these stories, we remember the faithfulness of God, we believe we are set free. What could bring us down? Right? And I'm not talking emotionally. Of course, life is hard. Sin is rampant. If we're trusting in human flesh, it's rather depressing. <laughs> it is sad. Right? But we're not called to hold fast to human flesh or human nature. Right? or how things are in your circumstances, we are called to hold fast to the word of the Lord that is eternal. And I'll include how Peter concludes his first chapter in verse 25. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word we're going to respond to today, right? That is the gospel. We're going to sing praises to our God. We're going to pray because God has made that available in relationship with him. We're going to give of our treasures, the things that can hold us back. We're going to give to the community so that we can bless those around us. And we're going to remember Jesus, right? Joel has prepared for us communion that we can go in your own time and take on your own to go and just remember the rich history that we have of God's faithfulness. And then we can move forward because of that love, we can move forward and now we can now go and love one another. I want to end with the last part of Isaiah 40, since Peter brought it up, as an encouraging charge to hold fast to as Isaiah was encouraging the people as they were going into the world. They were going into exile, into uncomfortableness, into things where, where they're going to believe something where people around them don't 
believe. This is what he encourages them, and I want us to encourage us with that today. Isaiah 40, 28, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 